You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. I'm Geraldine Carr. I'm a partner in the employment group in Matheson, and I'm joined today by my employment partner, Alva Dennehy, and senior associate on our team, John Casey. We've been working with organisations on their preparations for their gender pay gap reporting since as early as 2018, but certainly since the publication of the gender pay gap regulations in May of this year, we've seen a dramatic increase in the volume of queries related to the actual detail that employers are required to report in their gender pay gap reports. A number of organisations had in fact started preparing their calculations on the assumption that the requirements would be the same in Ireland as in the UK. A number of differences in the Irish regulations and the Irish requirements mean that a lot of those organisations have actually had to go back to scratch and start preparing and collating the data and running their numbers again. So I suppose while we've been advising employers on the regulations, we've come across a lot of thorny issues and practical difficulties, as I'm sure many of you have on the webinar today. And we thought it would be useful to host this webinar in order to run through a lot of those questions. We received a huge volume of questions from many of you in advance of the webinar. So we're going to go through those in some detail in as far as we can during the session today. So to give you an overview of what we'll run through, first of all, we're going to discuss the legal requirements. We'll look at the the framework for the gender pay gap reporting regime. We'll then turn to how do you prepare for this? What's the practical implementation? How do you collect the data? What types of pay buckets your pay needs to be split into? And then we'll look at the common queries and pitfalls before turning to the communication strategy that we recommend employers put in place, both internal and external. Finally, we'll turn to areas where we can help and also look at some questions that any of you submit on the webinar today via the Q&A function on your screen. So I suppose to turn to Alva first, before we delve into what these new reporting requirements mean in practice for employers, Alva, could you briefly explain what the existence of a gender pay gap means? Because I think there's a lot of confusion in this area amongst employers. Thanks, Geraldine. And and you're absolutely right. So I think it's very important from the outset to distinguish between two terms, the gender pay gap and unequal pay. So these concepts are often used interchangeably, as you say, and somewhat unhelpfully. This confusion can give rise to the impression that the existence of a gender pay gap means that women in an organization are not receiving like pay for like work, that there's some form of gender discrimination afoot. But significantly, the existence of a gender pay gap within a business is not necessarily a red flag for discrimination. So in terms of the formula, a gender pay gap is actually the difference in the average hourly pay of women compared with men across a particular organization. So it's not seeking to identify unequal pay per se, but rather to identify where the women are, where the women are represented across an organization and the extent to which there's equal representation from both males and females at each level within that organization. So as I already said, having a gender pay gap is not in and of itself unlawful. And this is an important point. In fact, more often than not, it's expected that an organization 
for a variety of internal and external factors will have some degree of a gender pay gap. There will be a figure to report. And we think that the bigger focus for employers here is going to be on the steps that are going to be taken to narrow that gap and what's really going to be done to, to move the dial in terms of reducing that, that figure. Thanks, Alva. I think that's a really important distinction to make at the outset. And so I suppose we should turn now to the legal obligations. Where are we now in terms of the gender pay gap reporting requirements in Ireland? Sure. And it's been a little bit of a slow boat coming to Ireland um, off the back of the UK regs. But just to set the scene very briefly in terms of the legal position, as of September 22 this month, Irish gender pay gap reporting regime consists of three main elements. The first being the foundations that were set out in the Gender Pay Gap Information Act, which was last year, 2021. And then we received the more granular detail and methodology per the regulations that were issued earlier this year. And the third element to, to bear in mind is the official but not binding government guidance and frequently um, asked questions that is consistently evolving as more and more queries come to the fore, as more and more employers are grappling with how to interpret the regulations and certainly how to crunch the numbers. But for the purpose of today's webinar, um, as Geraldine said, I'm going to run you through a very brief whistle-stop tour of the who, what, when and how of the reporting regime from a legal perspective. So turning now to look at who is in scope. So initially, only employers with a headcount of 250 employees or more as of a June snapshot date are within scope for reporting this year. So apparently in Ireland, currently there's about 450 to 500 employers in this bracket, but that doesn't mean um, that we're all going to rest on our laurels because this threshold is due to decrease twice in the coming years. So it's going to drop, as you can see on the slide, to 150 employees headcount wise to report by December 2024 and drop again to capture employers with a headcount of 50 or more by the third reporting year, which is December 2025. One question that we were seeing from queries in advance of this webinar was whether there's any sense that this threshold will drop again to capture employers with a headcount of less than 50. For now, there isn't an indication for probably a variety of reasons, not least of which would be the sort of administrative burden on a small, smaller entity and also, I suppose, data privacy concerns that certain employee salaries within a small organization would be more prone to, to being identifiable. But that's not to say that all employers under that threshold would consider themselves exempt. And I think one of the themes you'll see throughout our webinar today is this sense that market pressure is actually inadvertently forcing certain employers to actually get to grips with their numbers and report them regardless of this um, headcount threshold. So the number of employees employed for the purposes of this headcount are going to be the number of employees on that particular date that anyone who is in scope this year will have already selected in June. All employees are captured, whether they're full-time, part-time, specific purpose, fixed-term contracts, any employee who's on sick leave, family leave, annual leave, as of that date, are all still counted for headcount purposes. Now, one particular hot topic that has caused some healthy debate amongst us lawyers is the question of whether or not independent contractors or consultants are included within this headcount. So at first glance, the, the easy answer seems to be no, they're, they're not employees. And certainly there's plenty of case law out there making this fight over employee status for independent contractors. But it's not so simple when you look at the detail. And by detail, I mean the overarching legislation here, which is the Employment Equality Act, and the definition within those acts of what could constitute an employee. With this particular lens on, it does seem that there could be scope to argue that certain independent contractors or consultants 
do qualify for not just headcount purposes, but also for reporting purposes. So we'd definitely be recommending further advice is sought in that regard. In terms of other employees who might be expressly excluded, and this is another important set of categories to be aware of, and we've identified five categories that will be excluded. So the first is any individuals that have an employment contract with an entity other than the employing entity that is reporting, notwithstanding the fact that they perhaps perform work for that reporting entity, they're excluded. Agency workers are excluded, provided they're paid directly by the agency instead of the end user, the end user being the reporting entity, and that is the normal model. Thirdly, any employees who are currently on a 12-plus month career break as of the June snapshot date. Fourthly, any gender-neutral or non-binary employees. And finally, secondees, again, on the basis that those secondees are not employed by the entity that is reporting, but by another entity that is loaning them out or seconding them to that host entity. So moving on to the what, what needs to be published? And very happily, I'm going to be handing over to John Casey later on to get into into the weeds as to what types of detail will need to be reported. But at a very high level, the slide there shows you which figures you will need to report in terms of the mean and median hourly pay and bonus pay for men and women within the organization, and also the proportion of employees that receive benefits in kind or bonuses. As I said, John will talk you through the pay components in terms of the defined terms within the regulations for what constitutes ordinary pay, what's falling within allowances, what falls within bonus. But the key takeaway I'd like to to leave you with at this point is something that is required under the Irish regs that is not required under the the UK regs. So an important distinction to make here. So in addition to the numbers that will, will be reported, Irish employers are going to be required to publish effectively an explanation or a narrative alongside those figures. And this narrative is going to need to do two things. First, it's going to set out in that employer's opinion, the reasons for such differences in the mean and median pay that that are identified. And secondly, and most significantly, the measures that are already being taken or proposed to being taken by these employers to eliminate or reduce these differences. So we're predicting that this particular explanatory statement is going to be absolutely crucial for all organizations in terms of contextualizing the existence of the gap, bearing in mind that there could be a variety of various internal and external factors, i.e. factors outside an employer's control that feed into the existence of that gap. And then obviously the detail around what's going to be done to try and narrow that gap, very much feeding into being an invaluable recruitment and retention tool for all employers. Thanks, Alva. I think that explanatory statement will certainly need very careful consideration and input. And it's an area where we're working with a number of organisations as well, I suppose, putting the narrative around explaining why a gender pay gap exists and what measures the company are doing to address it. But before we get into that, what about when and how the information will need to be reported? What are the key dates for employers to be aware of there? Sure. Yeah. Um, great question. So there's there's three key terms to bear in mind here in terms of when the report is due. So the first date is the snapshot date, which we've talked about already. That's the date that you selected in June. Again, a quick comparison to the UK. Employers in the UK don't get to pick a date. It's the 5th of April every year. So just another little distinction there. The second term to bear in mind is the reporting date, the reporting deadline. That's going to be the corresponding date in December. So whatever date you picked in June this year, you're going to need to submit your figures and your expansion statement by that same date in December this year. The last term I'd leave you with is the reporting period. This is the look back period. And again, a key distinction between Ireland and the UK. So for the UK, their look back period is really just one month, the month of April. Whereas in Ireland, we need to look back 12 months. 
And I've put a very quick little example there to, to help you with this. So if you picked a snapshot date of the 30th of June, you need to report by the 30th of December. And the period in respect of which you're going to be crunching your numbers is going to be the 1st of July 2021 up until the 30th of June 2022. Now, one point, and this is just a query that we did receive in advance of the webinar, and what happens if you're, you have the, the 250 on your snapshot date, but something happens over the course of autumn, there's a collective redundancy or a mass exodus or a big reorg, and all of a sudden you're, you're well below the headcount. And I suppose the very short answer is that's irrelevant. If you had the 250 employees as of that date in June, you're still required to report your figures in December 2022. So just uh, very quickly, how this information needs to be reported. Very briefly, it's going to be re reported on your website and it needs to be accessible to all of your employees and any members of the public. If you don't have a website, you'll need to make it available in hard copy format at your registered place of work. Now, currently there isn't an online reporting system, but there has been a commitment or an indication from the department that that online portal will be set up for the next year's reporting year, uh, reporting lines probably by December 2023. And you need to keep those records for three years. That's just your, your GDPR bit to, to remember. But the key takeaway I wanted to focus on here is just the frequency in terms of the reporting. And the point I want to make is this is not a once-off obligation. It's not going to be a, a, a one-trick pony where you report your figures, you do the deep dive, the figures are there, the expansion statement on your roadmap is all there, and then we kind of forget about it to an extent. Because it's going to be an ongoing requirement, your first year's figures and the detail you put into your expansion statement in terms of the measures you propose taking are going to be exceptionally important because they'll form your yardstick or your benchmark for future reporting years. So whatever you report next year will be just judged against what you reported last year and so on and so forth. Great. Thanks, Alva. I think that's really helpful. Back in 2017, when mandatory gender pay gap reporting was introduced in the UK, it caused quite a bit of stir in the UK media, regardless of the fact that the UK legislation had no teeth in terms of potential sanctions. So I think it would be important if you could talk to us a bit about how the gender pay gap reporting in Ireland will be enforced. That's right. And this, the short answer is there are no teeth. And just to be very clear, that means that any employees who feel that you're not reporting properly or reporting at all have no scope to seek compensation. Equally, there's no scope for employers to be fined or receive an award of damages for not running their numbers properly. Similar to the UK, we are relying on that name and shame really driving compliance here. But there are a couple of additional routes to secure this compliance that the Irish regs have that the UK regs don't. The first is that the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission can apply to the civil courts for an order directing an employer to comply with the, the reporting requirements. And separately, an employee in your organisation similarly can apply to the WRC, the Workplace Relations Commission. And again, as I said, there's no scope for any compensation per se, but there will be scope for the WRC to, to order the employer effectively to comply with the reporting obligations. So while it's relevant that there aren't teeth in the sense that there aren't compensation or fines to, to, to be afraid of, I think what we're really anticipating here in terms of the real risk to businesses is going to be the damage that a negative gender pay gap figure can have on recruiting and retaining quality talent. So it's very much going to be something that we expect everybody to want to get behind for those brand reputation reasons, notwithstanding the perceived lack of teeth. Great, thanks, Alva. It's really helpful. So I want to turn now to John. So John, could you take us through, practically speaking, where an employer should start when they're looking to work through their obligations? Yeah, absolutely, Geraldine. So 
as Alva has touched upon, as with any new landmark law, look, there's a lot of noise in the media commentary about what it is and it isn't and what it's intended to achieve and what it will end up achieving. And she's looked at that in the context of what is the gender pay gap, actually. But equally, there's a fair bit of confusion at the moment about what gender pay gap reporting itself in Ireland looks like. And I think from a practical compliance perspective, maybe the simplest way for employers to demystify what they need to do is to start from where they will end up. And in reality, what you'll end up with is a number of numbers, primarily percentages and proportions, and an accompanying statement. Now, I know that we've already touched upon the statement itself and preparing it will be, you know, an involved process that will look different for different employers. And Alva has already helpfully included a slide with the different kind of metrics that need reporting, which have a lot of maths words in them like need and median and differences between hourly pay rates and bonus pay rates. But in essence, all they boil down to at the end of the day is the output is going to be figures. And that is all there really is to it. And so to be clear, there's no obligation to publish any monetary amount or euro amount. There's no obligation to report by employee role, by team or function. However, one quirk to watch out for is there is an obligation to report separately on uh, temporary and part-time employees. And so in practice, what this means is that you still include them in your overall figures for your general in-scope employee headcount, but you also need to have a separate strand of reporting specific to them. And John, knowing where we want to end up or where employers will want to end up, can you talk to us a bit about, practically speaking, how do they get there? How do they collate the data? Where do you start? So when you know where you have to go, I suppose you know that there's a process that you can follow to get there. And really, this process has probably three practical steps. They're fairly easy to summarise on a slide, but they're very hard to implement in practice. But effectively, what they are is you've got to gather all of your payroll information. You've got to then categorise it. And then you finally got to process it. So. The gathering step, we've seen a number of clients take a number of different approaches and and there isn't a one size fits all. For some, they will have internal payroll teams who have the capabilities of pulling the internal payroll file and modifying it as they need. We've seen with those type of clients in particular that they've chosen snapshot dates which might align neatly with the end of their payroll periods. For example, if you pay monthly in arrears on the 30th of each month, you might then choose the 30th of June as as your snapshot date to cut down on the number of adjustments you need to make. Now, other clients have who have external payroll providers are leveraging their technological capabilities and others still are engaging external service providers for the first time specifically to carry out this exercise. So I think the key point is regardless of how you get there or how you do it, the most important output from that gathering stage is that each payroll component should be as separate and as identifiable as you can make it. And then once you get there, that will greatly help with step two, which in many ways is proving The most difficult hurdle so far for clients that we're working with, certainly categorizing is an area Look, where there's going to be borderline calls, no matter how diligently you work on this. You need to categorize all the different pieces, I suppose, that make up your payroll into one of four buckets. And the first bucket is ordinary pay. The second is bonus remuneration. Third is benefits in kind. And the fourth is anything that's excluded. And I suppose touching on why that's proving so difficult this year is there are probably three primary factors driving it. The first is that there are just so many different payroll components and with some clients having upwards of 50 plus. The second is that with the acts, the regs, the guidance notes and the FAQs, even if you read them all together with the best will in the world, they won't have all of the clear answers that that you would want and the answer to every question. And then thirdly, and probably most particularly, there is an element of first year syndrome to all of this. So there's no comfort blanket of a best practice having been established. Employers don't know exactly how other employers are interpreting particular things. And so probably strangely for for the first year, a lot of the time is being put into this categorizing stage. 
even though in further years, as Alva has said, this is really a, an ongoing and multi-year process, the focus will probably shift more to the true purpose of legislation, which is how do you narrow and eliminate the, the pay gap. And then finally, I suppose, just in terms of processing the data, the good news is if you've got the first two steps right, you're, you've got solid foundations. And the bad news is that if you haven't done the first two steps right, then no matter how you process them, you, you won't get to the answer you want or need. And the regulations in this respect contain some relatively straightforward maths formulas that you can follow. The guidance notes have some good worked examples that worth having a look at. And probably the trickiest issue at this processing stage that we've seen so far is decisions around when and how you adjust bonus remuneration. John, as that categorising stage is throwing up so many issues and it seems to be where a lot of employers are currently finding themselves quite bogged down, could you take us through each of the pay buckets that you refer to in a bit more detail so people have a takeaway as to what should be included in each of those buckets? Of course, so I suppose starting with ordinary pay, there are certain things we know are definitely included and there on this slide, as you can see, they include normal salary, allowances, overtime payments, pay for piece work, ship premium pay, pay for sick leave, if you've got any salary top-ups on statutory leave, they're also included and paid during garden leave. Now, a lot of those are self-explanatory, but one element which is worth pausing at is the question of allowances, which is, are defined very broadly. They can include payments for additional duties or payments related to your location, the purchase, lease or maintenance of a vehicle, for example, or recruitment or retention, which is one we might touch on a bit further later. But for now, I suppose it's worth noting as well that ordinary pay certainly excludes a number of things. Redundancy payments are out, reimbursement for expenses are out, as are any hours worked outside the reporting period or income tax deducted because it is gross and in scope hours we're talking about. And then obviously any anything that's categorised as big is also out. So then moving on to bonus remuneration, in short, this is really about any payment which is linked to profit sharing, productivity, performance, incentive or commission. And again, I suppose we're talking about gross amounts and we're talking about payments made during the actual reporting period. Now, I think there, there are endless bonus remuneration questions that you could talk through and they take an awful lot of time. But if there was one takeaway maybe from today, it's that for the purposes of this category, it's relatively agnostic as to how they are paid. So whether it's in money, obviously it can be paid in that way. It could also be paid or provided through vouchers, shares, share options, interests and shares. And so rather than looking at the form of the payment, the key point is to focus on the why of, of it being made. So if it hits on any of those categories, which are profit sharing, productivity, performance, incentive or commission, it's going to be bonus remuneration and how it is labelled or what form it's paid in is almost secondary. So just to mention that it also specifically excludes anything that's categorised in the other two categories, so ordinary pay or benefits in kind, but it also excludes payments referable to redundancy or termination. So for example, any ex gratia termination payment would be out of this category. Then just touching on benefits in kind. So they're rather simply defined as any non-cash benefit, but an estimated monetary value. Interestingly, this is the same definition as, as revenue refers to for benefits in kind. And if the key point for assessing bonus remuneration is what's the purpose, the key point for benefits in kind is can you spend it? Because if it is something you cannot spend, it's most likely in this bucket. For example, the provision of an actual company car is a bit of a kind versus a car allowance, a payment of a sum of money is not. Confusingly, it can also include stock options and share purchase schemes. Now, bonus remuneration also refers to share-based remuneration potentially falling within that category. So I think if there's one takeaway from today on share-based remuneration, any form of it should be carefully and individually scrutinized before making a decision. And then finally, just to touch on before we move off the different categories is what's excluded. So 
in some ways, if it's not within the first three categories, it's not going into your calculations and there may be a temptation to forget about it. But one thing I would say is that keep your workings. It's important to have a record somewhere of why you excluded something which was excluded from your gender pay gap calculations, because that could be challenged just as the elements that you've included could be challenged. Great. Thank you, John. Those are, I suppose, the, an overview of the money matters and the different pay buckets that employers need to categorise their pay into. But could you talk to us a little bit next about what working hours figures employers should use for the purposes of the calculations? Yes, for, for whatever reason, I suppose this is an area that employers appear to have paid less attention to so far, and it may be just the stage of, of discharging their obligations that they're at. But it's no harm to just mention that in short, the regulations provide for four different methods. and the first is basically if hours worked are recorded. So if you're clocking in and clocking out of work every day, then it's those recorded hours are used. If you've set contractual hours, then those may be used. And that's going to come up a lot in professional services industry. If there's no set hours, then there's an averaging of the hours which must be used. And then if you're in a piecework category of employee, then it's the number of hours worked on a piecework basis in the relevant pay period. I suppose the key point is that you must choose the, the option that's most appropriate to determine the working hours of the particular employee. So it's a focus on what most accurately reflects the reality. And then one, one final point to mention, which I think we're going to touch on in our next section, is the effect of periods of leave on that. So I think I'll hand back to you, Geraldine, now with that. Perfect. Great. Thank you very much. So we're going to turn now to talk about the tricky areas and the common queries that we see coming up in practice. And we've included, I guess, within this section as well, a number of the areas which you have sent through as questions in advance of the webinar. So I suppose the very first one really is to talk about how do employers treat periods of paid or unpaid leave during the reporting period? This seems to come up quite a bit as an area for confusion. So I think to simplify it, we need to distinguish first between paid leave and unpaid leave. So if I take unpaid leave, first of all, where an employee is on unpaid leave, whether that's unpaid sick leave, unpaid maternity leave, paternity leave, parental leave, for example, that period would not be taken into account in calculating the total working hours of an employee. I suppose the guidance is clear that hours not worked and not paid by the employer are excluded from the calculation of total working hours and excluded from the calculation of hourly pay. So if there's employees who are on unpaid maternity leave, unpaid sick leave and so on, you would exclude those periods from, from your hourly and pay calculations. When we turn then to paid leave, so where an employee is absent from work on paid leave, whether that's paid maternity leave or paid sick leave, and that period should then be included in determining the working hours for that employee where they receive pay from the employer during that period. So another question that came up quite a lot is what do you do with social welfare benefits where an employee is in receipt of maternity benefit or paternity benefit or another social welfare payment and the employer tops up that pay. So any social welfare payments payable to an employee but which are paid directly to the employer in line with a mandate from the employee for the department to pay it direct to the employer, they are not to be included in the calculations. So maybe if I just run through an example where you have an employee on maternity leave who receives maternity benefit from the state, let's say for the first 26 weeks. And if that employee gets top up payments from the employer to bring the employee up to their full salary throughout that 26 period of the maternity leave, then where the employee is signed over the social welfare payment 
to be paid by the department to the employer, it should not be included again in calculating the employee's ordinary pay for the purposes of the, the reporting. And then to talk about the hours, I suppose, how do you calculate the hours worked for an employee on paid leave, such as, for example, even annual leave or paid sick leave or the paid maternity leave? So the simple takeaway on that is you treat it as though the employee was not on leave at all. The total number of hours worked should be determined in line with one of the methods that John outlined earlier in terms of calculating the hours worked. So that's set out in regulation four of the regulations you, you look at, whichever method is appropriate to the particular circumstances of the employee. So effectively, there's some confusion also where an employee might be on full pay for the first number of days or weeks of sick leave and then they move to reduced pay for the next portion of their sick leave for example and questions arise as to how do you calculate their working hours so the number of working hours in that example will be the same irrespective of whether the employer pays full pay or reduced pay during the employee's leave so hopefully that clarifies some of those questions. I'll turn now just to ask Alva the next one. Alva, we received a number of questions as well in advance of today's webinar around how to handle multiple subsidiaries in a group company context. And indeed, some questions have been submitted on the Q&A today also. And the question is, I suppose, does the 250 plus employee headcount threshold include headcount of group or subsidiary companies? Thanks, Geraldine. Yeah, absolutely. But this question is coming up time and time again. And there's an important distinction, I think, to get right from the outset. So from a legal perspective, as long as there's no entity within your group structure, so within your, your multiple subsidiaries that has a headcount of more than 250 employees, then you're outside of the regulations and you're not required to report. So put very simply, there's no requirement to add up your individual headcounts per subsidiary. So, you know, 100 here, 50 there, and so on and so forth. However, that legal answer is possibly not the only consideration here and just touching on a few points you made earlier what we are seeing from a market trend perspective is that a lot of employers even if they're technically outside the scope of the reporting obligations are stepping up to run their numbers and certainly in a group context if you have one entity that has the, the relevant 250 what we are seeing on the ground is that businesses are looking at their other subsidiaries regardless of the fact that they fall short of the 250 and considering whether from a brand reputation or recruitment and retention perspective, it's actually worth their while going ahead and publishing those figures with the right context in the statement too. And then what about if the business has employees working overseas? How do employers treat that? Sure. So going back to, I suppose, the regulations, the regulations have certain defined terms. So they define a relevant employee very simply as an employee of a relevant employer on the relevant date. And a relevant employer is defined as an employer who employs not less than 250 employees on that relevant state. So really the rule of thumb that we're seeing when looking at employees who may be working overseas will be to identify their employing entity in the first instance, and secondly, to look at which entity's payroll they're on. So where they're employed by an Irish entity and paid by the Irish entity, regardless of the fact that they work overseas or perform services outside of the immediate business, they will be included in the headcount and they will be included in the reporting requirement too. 
Another question or another area that seems to be causing a lot of confusion and difficulties for employers is how to treat share-based remuneration. And indeed, we got another question through the Q&A box on the screen today as well around whether share-based remuneration is included in bonuses. And as John outlined, it is. But the question that we most frequently get asked is where an employer issues share-based remuneration to an employee, what monetary value should be taken into account for gender pay gap reporting purposes? Is it the value at the date of grant or the value at the date of the vesting of the share-based remuneration? And I guess the position on this is unclear because the guidance is unclear and the regulations are unclear. So the gender pay gap FAQs issued state that a bonus in the form of shares is deemed to be paid to an employee when that bonus is provided to the employee and at the value of the share when it is issued. And the guidance then, the separate document guidance note states that any payments in the form of securities should be treated as if they were paid to the employee at the time the remuneration is provided and at the nominal value at that point in time. So I suppose in essence, that means there's a couple of key concepts to interpret. We need to consider what's meant by when remuneration is provided and what's meant by when a share is issued. And really, this is open to different interpretations. The, the guidance or the regulations don't clearly set out what they mean by that point. So in our view, there is a reasonable basis for an employer to interpret the guidance on the basis that the shares are issued when they are granted to an employee, for example, in an award agreement. But I suppose valuing the shares on vesting could lead to significant fluctuations not related to gender, but related to other external factors, because as many of you will know, vesting can often be subject to conditions such as, you know, whether the employee leaves before a certain date, the circumstances of their leaving, if they're a good leaver, a bad leaver, other factors such as that. So it's possible that valuing the shares a grant is a more straightforward way and perhaps the guidance was intended for it to be interpreted in that way for that reason, notwithstanding the fact that employees may not actually get the benefit of the shares in monetary terms until they vest. There is a little bit of a disconnect, I guess. But the key thing is for employers to adopt an interpretation approach and to apply it consistently because this will give you the, the picture that you're that the purpose of the regulations is intended, which is to show is there a pay gap based on gender. And just to, I suppose, reiterate any subsequent activity in respect of shares, whether it be share options or SUs, for example, if, the, if it's the conversion of a share option into shares, that's not relevant for the purposes of calculating hourly pay under the regulations. So I hope that helps clarify some of the questions on that point. John, I'll move to you next just to consider how do we deal with sign-on bonuses or referral bonuses or retention payments? We've got a couple of questions on how to deal with those pay buckets as well. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose this is interesting because it's thrown up some dilemmas as to when, for example, something that's initially intended to be a retention payment that's just paid out simply at different service milestones crosses over from being that which would make it ordinary pay and into being more about incentive, in which case it would be bonus pay. I think our view is that the starting point in this should be that, look, the definition of allowances under ordinary pay specifically includes payments related to recruitment or retention. So as a starting position, you should treat it as such. But in any case, then 
you should scrutinize the pay component. You should look at what's its true purpose. So, for example, once you actually look at it, if you see there are performance or incentive elements to how it is structured in the retention example, then the more it leans towards those factors, the more likely it's going to become bonus remuneration or an ordinary pay. The one difference between this and some of the other borderline calls is regardless, it will be included and it will be included in the calculations. But how you treat it will be different depending on whether it's ordinary pay or bonus pay. And Alva, just final question for you on this one. How do we deal with employees on long-term sickness absence who are in receipt of PHI from an insured provider? Sure. Well, um, as you said out earlier, any employee on a long-term sickness absence remains relevant for headcount purposes. So whether that employer is going to be in scope or out of scope in terms of their headcount threshold, we will absolutely be factoring in anybody who's absent, even on a long-term basis. As we know, hours that aren't worked and are not paid by the employer, they're going to be excluded from the calculation of total working hours and hourly pay. So where an employer is only reporting hours that are actually worked and paid by the employer, as you took us through earlier, Geraldine, it makes sense that any PHI payment from an insurer would be excluded on the basis that that is from a third party. I think that's wrapping up on our our common queries and pitfalls, and we will have time for some additional Q&A at the end. But one area that... I think is going to be a key focal point for many attendees on this webinar is going to be the communication strategy, both internally and, of course, externally. Geraldine, could you talk us through some top tips that we're recommending to our clients in this regard? Yep, absolutely. Thank you. As we saw from the UK experience, when the gender pay gap reports were first published there, there was widespread media coverage exposing employers with high gender pay gaps. And we do expect a similar occurrence to take place here. And there is likely to be a focus by the Irish media on the reports published in December. And I expect we'll see a lot of media commentary on this through January, early into next year as well. So it's essential that organisations are prepared for this and that they develop both an internal and an external communications strategy. Alba, as you outlined at the beginning of our session today, it is a specific requirement that employers set out the reasons for the gap. But also, I think that just to stress the point that you also made at the start, it's, it is expected that a lot of organisations will have some degree of gender pay gap due to a variety of internal and external factors Gender pay gaps are largely about the roles that women do within the workplace and the representation of women in senior or highly paid roles. And I suppose given that requirement for employers to specifically publish a statement setting out both the reasons for any pay gap that they have identified and the measures that they're taking to eliminate or reduce such a pay gap, we do recommend that employers engage PR expertise to assist them in preparing with this public statement. And I suppose... Aside from that as well, organisations do need to stress test the reasons for any gap identified and consider the measures that they're taking to address any gender pay gap. So, I mean, I've heard the comments that a lack of women in the existing talent pool in a particular industry or sector is, you know, in some instances, an obvious reason for a gender pay gap in that industry. And, you know, what can the employer do about it? But I suppose the requirement to annually calculate and to report statistics should really be taken as an opportunity for employers to really consider what they can do. And I think this exercise of preparing a gender pay gap report will really, I guess, put the focus on on this. Diversity and inclusion in organisations is really in sharp focus at the moment. And the exercise, I suppose, should force 
gender diversity to be an important and a recurring agenda item at management or board level meetings. We would also see that questions about pay gaps and what an organisation is doing to address this gap can often be included in pitches or tenders and it's likely to become even more prevalent once the pay gap statistics are published in Ireland. And so I think it's it's really useful for organisations to get out in front of this. And I suppose I'm turning to the internal viewpoint as well. Employers are also likely to face pressures from their existing workforce on their gender pay gaps. And so it's vital that employers also develop an internal communication strategy and consider how best to communicate the key items in its report to its workforce. There's many different ways of going about this and every employer will have its own approach as to how it chooses to engage with its workforce on these types of issues. For example, some might decide to do so by way of a town hall event or they might direct employees to internal resources. They might disseminate FAQs or a combination of those events. So there's no right or wrong way to do it and and each organisation will have their preference for how they choose to deal with it. And finally, I suppose managers are also likely to receive questions from their team members on any pay gaps that have been identified in a report. So they need to be equipped with the tools and the information to address these questions. So fundamental to this, I believe, is that they should also understand what a gender pay gap is and what are the internal and the external factors contributing to it and what measures an organisation is putting in place to address it. So employers might decide to prepare FAQs on the content of the report, for example, to be issued to managers and to the wider employee body in order to explain those issues. So just to turn then to some of the key areas that we have been assisting employers with them and where we can assist further as well. We've been advising a lot of employers and interpreting the regulations and the guidance in you know, preparing the data, the report, the internal and external communications and preparing those in a legally privileged manner, advising on any related internal grievances or allegations of discrimination that might be raised by employees and bearing in mind the distinction that Alva made at the outset about the distinction between equal pay and gender pay gaps. Gender pay gap does not identify unequal pay. They are two completely separate concepts. We can assist with providing training to staff, for example, unconscious bias training to drive diversity in recruitment and promotion practices within an organization, and also carrying out a review of promotion and recruitment policies, compensation structures, and approaches to you know, family leave, flexible working, and diversity inclusion initiatives as well. So I think that wraps up a lot of the content that we wanted to run through on the webinar today. And we did want to allow a good chunk of time at the end to run through any questions. And I can see that there's plenty of questions that have been submitted through the Q&A. So thank you for availing of that. So I suppose just to turn to you, Alva, first to take one of those questions, if I may. One of the questions is that we've run our numbers and identified a gender pay gap within our business. What recommendations do you have for practical measures that we could consider putting in place and detailing in the explanatory statement to address that gender pay gap? Sure, of course. And look, Jared, as you know, you've already touched on, on a couple of those in terms of where Matheson can, can hopefully add value. And look, the types of measures that um, any individual organisation will consider putting in place as part of their roadmap 
is obviously going to be driven by whatever those internal and external factors are. So it's going to be very specific on a case-by-case basis. Um, but certainly there are a number of, I suppose, key work streams that, that could be considered by pretty much any organization attending today. The first area to look at is, is possibly quite an easy one, and that's going to be looking at, at your policies. And what you'll really be uh, striving for will be a comprehensive flexible and agile working policy. And that needs to be coupled with a robust diversity inclusion policy, as you mentioned, and that, that's going to be core and almost a, a must-have for any organization. The second point I would consider looking at would be investment and, and really looking at where your business is investing, both now and, and in the future. And by investment, I mean investing in your staff through measures such as, you know, reskilling or, or upskilling with a focus on gender diversity. And that'll look at things, you know, such as diversifying the leadership pool and putting in place, you know, innovative methods around talent development and integration. What what types of methods? And I mean that this is a developing area for a number of businesses. So really exploring it and, and seeing what might fit for your organization. Uh, culture is is another big word. It's, it's a buzzword, as, as we all know. And some of our clients have already taken steps in this regard, such as uh, appointing diversity managers, implementing culture review, availing of our suggestion that we would run unconscious bias training, and so on and so forth. And then finally, really, it, it, because gender pay gap is such a, it's not a quick fix, it's a slow burn. So really changing whatever your reported figure is going to be in December 22 in any significant way by next year or even by the year after, is going to be a very uphill battle. So part of the way that you will try and sow those seeds to cause the change you want to see will be through your recruitment and your promotion practices. So things like looking at your job descriptions, could they be redrafted in a way that makes them more attractive to female talent? Is there a way of reassessing how you run your recruitment and who you identify for promotion in perhaps a more transparent skills-based assessment that cuts across this idea that there's an unintentional bias in favor perhaps of a male candidate. So those kind of four areas I think are the ones to start looking at. But again, as I said at the outset, it's going to be very specific and it needs to be very responsive to your particular organization's push and pull factors internally and externally. Great, thank you. Um, we've received a question on the top-up payments again. So where top-up payments are made to employees on maternity or paternity leave or other forms of leave, should the social welfare benefit be included in the calculation of their ordinary pay? So this is one of the points I ran through earlier. So where an employee is on leave and they receive those social welfare payments from the department, then if those payments are returned to the employer by the in line with the mandate from the employee to the department, then such payments are not to be included in the calculations. So hopefully that clarifies that point. The next question, perhaps John, I might turn to you because it relates to pay categories. What is the best way to make borderline calls between pay categories? Yeah, it's a, it's a good one because uh, what we've seen is that the, the vast majority of payroll components could be fairly easily identified and, and put into their correct category. But then it's it's the last small percentage of them that take up a lot of time. So I suppose there's no one size fits all again, but and a practical approach would be to focus on the elements we've discussed. So look at a combination of how it's paid, why it's paid. And if there's a specific reference to it somewhere in the regulations, FAQ or guidance documents, so an example of that is the one we discussed earlier. So if it's expressly called out in regulations that payments related to recruitment and retention are ordinary pay. And so there you would start with that as a default point and you'd want a good reason to depart from it, from that starting point. 
And I suppose just to say that there's, give an example of some borderline issues around what we've seen around bonus remuneration and benefits in kind, and there can be implications out of it, which is that if something you determine is in the benefits in kind bracket, you're not reporting on the monetary value, you're actually just reporting on the proportion of male and female employees who get it. So it has quite an impact. And examples we've seen are, say, there's a difference between if someone is provided with health insurance or if someone is provided with a sum of money to contribute towards it. Or for example, if someone has some element of utility bills as charged versus being provided with an allowance towards it. So if it's just something is being directly provided and you cannot spend and we're taking the view that it should be benefits in kind, whereas equally the alternatives should be categorised as ordinary pay. Great. Thank you. Alva, a question directed to you. What do you consider to be the most likely pitfalls that employers preparing to report this year will encounter? It's a great question and one with probably multiple answers. So I know John said earlier that in a perfect world, we'd have the act, the regulations and the guidance, and they'd all be read clearly together in an easy to understand format. And the content of today's webinar would actually be very straightforward, as opposed to, I suppose, what we've been doing today is very much highlighting the ambiguity and the grayness around these reporting obligations and understanding the difficulties that clients and employers within Ireland are, are grappling with. So there's a number of pitfalls, not least of which I think is probably going to be around the categorization of the pay components that John took us through earlier and really just getting comfortable with which bucket you decide to put the various components in when one of your numbers. And I think if, if I could kind of set out a best-in-class strategy that we would be recommending as a takeaway for, for clients who are in this position is just to be kind to yourselves and realize that provided you're taking a good faith approach here, provided your assessment is reasonable, it's stateable, there, there's been some thought process gone into why you decided to put one item in, in you know, the ordinary pay bucket versus the BIK bucket or allowance bucket, et cetera, then that's a very, very good start. And I suppose building on that, and I think John mentioned this as well, is this idea of, you know, keeping your thought process written down somewhere. I mean, show your workings. It's a bit like you're leaving certain maths exam. Like you'll probably get some points for workings. And as opposed to just stabbing in the dark and saying, well, we thought it, it was BIK because of X, when in fact, there's a thought process that's really gone into it. And again, given that this is our first year at the gate, given that there is this grayness and this ambiguity around the, the regulations and the guidance, and it's an ever-evolving process with a very short lead-in time, to be fair. I mean, we're running from June to December and still getting questions, even today, a very, very important questions that some of our answers are, we don't quite have the right answer for, for very good reasons. I do think that there will be a little, or we would hope that there will be a little bit of leeway given in an environment where you've taken that good faith approach, shown your workings, come up with your solution. And I think the scope for being critical or in any way penalizing somebody for whatever their reported figures are should be minimal, certainly in, in the first year out for the reasons I've, I've just mentioned. And I suppose the third point is, is just maybe to echo what I said earlier in terms of very much focusing not too much on the numbers. The numbers do not necessarily mean that, you know, that there's a, a terrible practice of discrimination afoot within your organization. I would be much more focused on what you're going to do in terms of the detail in your roadmap, what that looks like, what you can genuinely set out that you can commit to and implement in the coming year in a way that will secure your, your role in the market in terms of recruiting and retaining key female talent. I think that's really good advice. The next question I can take is how to deal with unpaid parental leave where an employee takes one day's leave. 
per week during the reference period. So this relates to the point I was talking about about treating paid and unpaid leave. So where it's unpaid parental leave, as parental leave most commonly is, then it is only the hours which the employee receives pay from the employer that are taken into account in calculating hourly remuneration. So I suppose you would calculate all the pay that the employee got during the reference period and then reduce the hours down by those unpaid days. So hopefully that explains that point. John, there's a question on temporary and part-time workers, which I think touches on some of the points, the key points to be reported on that you covered. So how does the reporting on temporary and part-time workers work? I suppose, touching on what I've said already, you effectively have them in twice. So you're including them in your calculations for your overall in-school population, but you're also then creating this kind of separate standard reporting specific to, to them alone. And one thing to watch out for is that it's not every metric or every percentage that you need to report on separately for those. It's I think it's it's actually limited to the hourly pay rates, the mean and median calculations on those. So you don't need to over overdo it. You can keep to what the obligation is. And then just to mention that part-time employees are, are defined just as you would expect as anyone who works less than normal hours of a comparable employee. But there's no definition of temporary employees. A fairly safe assumption is that it will include fixed-term workers and it will include specific purpose contract workers. Question for you, Alva, as it touches on something that you ran through earlier is around gender-neutral or non-binary employees. So you mentioned that employees who identify as gender-neutral or non-binary are not included in the employee count. And can you confirm if that is Yes, just to be clear, that's one of the five categories that of individuals that are excluded for the purposes of reporting. Again, that's an area that may possibly be open to evolution as time goes on. But I think given the very new status from, from a legal context of a gender neutral or non-binary individual, for now, they're excluded. And I know we're coming to time. So perhaps uh, the last question is, is there a template for employers to follow a template report? There isn't one published for employers to to follow. Uh, but I suppose what, you know, many employers are looking to is their legal advisors to help them with preparing a template or they'll look at gender pay gap reports published by companies in the UK to see the format that they followed, obviously noting the key differences in the the data that needs to be reported in Ireland versus in the UK. And also, maybe if I have time, I'll take one last question. It's, is there a repository where the reports need to be uploaded? So the government hasn't yet launched a portal for those reports to be uploaded. So currently it is just that they should be published on the employer's website and be publicly available that way. So I think we're at time, but thank you all for attending the webinar today. Hope you find the content useful and thank you all for engaging and for your questions as well, which I know we didn't get to cover all of them, but hopefully we covered the majority of the points that you've raised. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to your usual Matheson contact or to Alva, John or myself, and we would be delighted to assist. But in the meantime, have a great day and thank you for joining. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. 
You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.